0: Saturday. What day is it today?
1: Wednesday. Exactly.
0: <laughs> Welcome to Film Fi Club. I'm Glenn Falconslam from Falcon Screen and we're joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Hello. And Freelance Writing Critic, Art Nehru. Hello, hello. Later in the program, we'll be talking all things Bill and Ted Face the Music, which is in cinemas now. A couple of things happening around town. The Queer Screen Film Festival is online, going until the 17th. The Gold Coast Film Festival is having a screening events this week online. And Static Vision are going into their 26th week of screenings. That's half a year. This coming Friday and The Antenna Documentary Film Festival have a couple of events in person, also tied in with the Queer Screen Film Festival. And on the 19th, if you're up Blue Mountains Way, the Blue Shorts Film Festival is happening at the absolutely gorgeous Mount Vic Cinema. But for now, this is the Underground Film Festival is going online for the first time in its 14-year history. It is in full swing. Chris and I had a lot of fun watching a number of the Shorts programs, including Take 48 over the weekend. And we have with us the director of the Underground Film Festival to talk all things up, Stefan Popescu. Stefan, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me. You're
0: always at the Factory Theatre for the first time you've gone online. Stuff is accessible around the country and to patrons everywhere. What has it meant for the festival to go online? Can you tell us a little bit about the process of getting this festival up for the masses and for everyone to see?
2: Yeah, well, it was, it was interesting because the, I mean, with all the COVID restrictions and the general... then um, made it sound so positive. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm sure it's not, not ideal for you, huh?
2: No, like, I mean, we're community-based. Like, as, as anyone who's been to the festival knows, part of the whole festival is going to the factory theatre and, you know, watching a film, then going to have a beer, chatting to the filmmakers, then going to do a workshop, you know, having that choice. It, it is like a festival, like a music festival or something.
1: Yeah, uh, The so- factory gives it that because it, you've got that courtyard and all the cinemas are built around it. Everyone meets in the central area. It's great. An amazing jerk chicken place.
0: Yeah,
2: the the site specificness of it is very important to the festival, and so we we're very disappointed when this situation arose. And it, and it was sort of part factory theatre, part the unpredictability of what the hell's going on with this COVID mm. craziness. Uh, um, we went, well, let's, let's try it online. So, um, you know, we found a platform to go through. I mean, it's, it, it is what it is. And there are, strangely, there are opportunities. So there, there is a positive side to it. Because, you know, f- for the first time, people in America and Ukraine, and actually, we're getting a lot from the Ukraine streams, <laughs> because of the Ukrainian session, are able to See the festival. So there is this opportunity to get us out to the rest of the world, which is fantastic, and get a new audience, which might even linger after this time. Like you know, we we, we actually said at the beginning, oh look, if this is successful, um, because we're doing just shorts as well. I made the decision really early on because usually it's me that chases the feature films and stuff. And we actually tried. We actually tried chasing a feature film or two and it was like near impossible to cut deals with distributors that like you
1: probably need some real weight behind you like at least myth size to be able to do that, right? I mean, even Sydney Film Festival, with the exception of a few tiny please-please-screen-us movies, were only shorts this year.
2: Exactly, exactly. So, But it's also just a legal nightmare because a lot of them already have cut deals with online screening uh-huh. before. Because the way, the way the road works or whatever, the, the pathway works, is that you, you sell out all your online distribution, you sell out your theatrical... And the last thing that's left is festivals and stuff, which come first. So your, your film gets into a festival and it usually depends where you're premiering it to. Like if you're premiering it in your home country, you get leeway. So you can still be called a premiere overseas and then premieres at a festival, then goes into the cinemas. And then two weeks later or so it's online. And so the deals are already set up. So you know you're trying to cut a deal. Going, can I go? Can I screen your film online before <laughs> before he goes to Netflix? <laughs> like Netflix right. will never allow it.
1: <laughs> mm. <laughs> it's such a shame that somehow no one's figured out online distribution rights yet, or even just international distribution rights. It's still like this great unknown that everyone's still figuring it out. It seems to me
3: because I would feel that given you're a festival that this uh, the online screening would still count as a festival screening, but it's, it's supposedly not, which is kind of still shit.
2: Well, it, 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 uh, it's such a gray area that this has really pointed out that gray area. And and yes, it, it would be quantifiable as that, unless the online platform wanted to argue differently. So, mm-hmm. they, so the distributor would have to go back to the online platform, go, hey, Netflix, I know that we're premiering with you online and our contracts solely with you but hey can this small festival do a screening before you, <laughs> um, you know, it's just uh, yeah it just um it doesn't it, basically i just saw landmines everywhere and went man this this will take like lawyers like a group of lawyers to work this one out so they're the worst
1: and at a point where you have less money than ever before probably
2: <laughs> yes <yeah. laughs> we, we lost uh, we lost like we, we had a, a ton of our sort of sponsorship cut and stuff purely because part of our sponsorship comes from sydney university sydney university had all the covid problems and i work for sydney uni and i I shouldn't say too much but i i had some research personal research funding and and also curriculum funding and stuff like that which was substantial and everything across the board was brought into austerity measures now they didn't officially Mm -hmm. cut it they just kind of went oh you can only spend it on these things which are none of anything that's related to what you can do (laughs) depressing yeah yeah so it's it's going to be interesting times i'm 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 very intrigued about the economic fallout of this to see what's going to happen because right now it's just being bolstered by tons of debt that our children are going to pay
1: or not (laughs) not. (laughs) not going in a political direction I reckon a lot of the debt stuff is scaremongering. I think there'll be other fallouts, but I think the whole thing about you're all going to pay the debt. No, I feel like it's it's debt to ourselves that we're going to decide we don't have to pay back because why would we? It's guaranteed based on our success. See where we are progressing as an economy, provided we get to that point. The debt's guaranteed. Like, yeah. I think I think there's no way anyone can ever pay this off. Yeah. So let's, let's just collectively let's all agree: let's to just get make the more debt. films, just shoot more make movies, make more stuff, infrastructure, films, whatever. Just make stuff. Don't pay the debt. Because <laughs> you know if we have to pay the debt, we are screwed forever.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you, you know what i'd like to see come out of this i'd like to see more um transparency and knowledge about how economic systems work
1: because we've all just done something that's supposedly impossible a yeah. whole bunch of nations are doing that at, yeah. at full speed ahead
2: it kind of it kind of discloses the whole thing's a bit of a scam
1: <laughs> yeah it totally does <laughs> yeah. funny money
2: yeah it's like who's this debt to where is this debt? What? What? Federal Reserve? But isn't that us? Like, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> I'm just gonna bunker down in the basement of the factory theater and ride this out and come out every like few years, just like Ever- everything sorted, everything done. No, no. All right, back in the hole. <laughs>
1: yeah. I yeah. I don't know. I I wonder. I've been wondering a lot about what are the ramifications going to be for film. Like, how do you feel about that, Stefan?
2: Uh, well, that, that, that's really interesting because like again, all my film work got cut because it was. Um, connected to China. <laughs> <Whoops>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, I was getting like. I should. Lick. I'm sorry. I'm. It's gallows humor. Everything. Yeah. That's no. I'm. No. It's it's cool. Like I I, I wasn't. I yeah. mean. I was, uh, <laughs> I'm not like ha.
1: Yeah. <laughs> your <funding> up, <laughs>
2: yeah. Um yeah, so I I used to get like a couple of feature writing gigs a year, like maybe one or two. I was averaging at least an ad or two, definitely some consultation stuff on whether it was festivals or whatever. Just nothing, just completely stopped. And and I've got a a producer friend who specializes in China Australia film relations and I speak to him quite often and he's so optimistic about the future because he's like yes we've got to prepare for when things get better and I'm just like dude our, our last journalist just left China like because they were going to get arrested <laughs> I don't think this is getting better anytime soon
3: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> yeah, so, yeah it's, look I think I think there will be um there's always going to be a film production market or whatever. Like, there's going to be that. You now, what that's going to look like is going to be really interesting.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. And I mean, and I'm... who
2: who who which country is going to funnel money into it? That's that's the question. Because it was totally heading towards China sort of dominating the film market, and it's it's definitely not that now. To keep... are we
0: going to start seeing films uh, from more from different jurisdictions? Are they going to be directly influenced by? The pandemic and that we'll see different levels of budgeting will we see films well,
1: focused on uh, the pandemic and the fallout from yeah it? i was wondering that too with what you were saying about china i mean i know china it's interesting because like they don't really have much soft power do they I- i'm stepping outside of the bounds of film fight club uh, and going political but i feel like a lot of chinese material is so nationalistic like yeah, mainland it, Chinese film, that it doesn't have much international power. So instead, it's like, let's funnel money into international productions as a business venture.
2: Yeah, yeah they were working. And again, I'm stepping out of politics, but it, it's interwoven. It, it, you can't you can't extrapolate the two. I think a, a big thing for me is like a big signifier is uh, Operation Red Sea, if anyone's seen that. I heard about I heard, it. I didn't see it. You saw but, it. But, but that was a marker. That was a marker in, in Chinese film cinema history sort of thing where it was the first time they really tried this soft power approach, you know, but it's not. It was so heavy handed. It was nothing to do with soft power whatsoever. But, but they were trying to emulate that American. Uh, so So, you know, they had economically engaged everyone. There was a lot of political sort of power. And now it's time to convert the minds of people. And um, and this is where they fell short. (laughs) Everything collapsed before they really got in there Um, because it it could have happened. Hollywood could well have evaded that.
1: I mean, America's falling. There needs to be a (coughs) superpower of entertainment, right? Yeah. Yeah. um, Well, we think we feel like there needs to be, because there always has been as long as we've had film.
2: I think there's always going to be entertainment. Entertainment won't go away because um, entertainment is one of the most powerful ideological and political tools that people have at their fingertips. And mm. it's perfect because it's disguises as entertainment, which is meant to be apolitical. And right. so if anything, I, I reckon a lot of films going to ramp up and I would suggest, like I'm predicting that there's going to be depending where we're heading, but if we're heading towards a hot war or something, I think there's going to be a lot more sort of nostalgic propaganda stuff about Second World War. And I think we're seeing that a little bit in the You're news. You're right.
1: Hey, it's starting to come back in. Glenton was talking about how budgets could be affected and stuff. It feels like it's going to take a long time before big budget filmmaking wraps up on any scale. I'd love, I mean, I always make these optimistic predictions about futures for the kind of like grassroots filmmaking stuff that we all love and that your know, festivals about. Um, and I'm in too cynical a, m- a mood to really do that now but wouldn't it be great if there's the feeling that we need stories and people really stepped it up with underground filmmaking, grassroots efforts?
2: You that... know, it's very possible in terms of, because um, a lot of festivals have gone online. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've, I think people are, uh, got tired of Netflix and, and stuff like that. I, I know I am. I can't find anything on there. How did this multi, multi, I don't know if it's billion, but um, multi-billion dollar company not put out new fucking releases? <laughs> really? Well, they've,
1: they've run out of new content, right? They Now they need to just buy the limited supply of what's left or they need to condition people to do what they've conditioned people against, which is getting interested in watching older films.
2: Yeah, yeah, I- I- exactly, exactly. So, so there is hope that, yeah, because people want content, there is hope for indies. I would love... For Netflix to go back to its original business model, where they were dealing with filmmakers directly, right? Yep. God, that would be my dream. You know that you know Chris can go make a film and sell it to Netflix. Was right? It's just yeah. You know. well, I've been to- hoping
1: it would go in that direction, honestly, for selfish as well as altruistic reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but
0: it's, well, it's yeah. what I'm wondering now: Are we going to have more direct access? For filmmakers, with our festivals going to be in a different position, whether it's getting out material or reaching the audience, as we've seen MIF have their best year ever and increase the ticket sales last year, certainly different places are reaching out more folks. Will distributors look for these avenues as they're going beyond, which, while they have their called geographic crowd, but still going beyond that? Is that going to be an avenue that they wanted to, that these distributors are going to want? Will, Will the streamers have to reckon with this?
2: Yeah. I mean, like, gee, I, I certainly hope so. And I, you know, hopefully there'll be little companies set up instead of this sort of distributors where they're kind of like agents acting for independence and stuff like that. A little bit like YouTube, how people represent YouTube sort of celebrities and stuff like that. Yeah.
1: Well, well we, we just need people to start caring when they search out the stuff to watch online about stories as opposed to those YouTube celebrity type things. Yeah. like. I spoke to someone the other day who had a massively cynical take, which I don't agree with, even though I think he has more truth to what he's saying than I'd like to admit, where he he basically saw no future really in a big way for any narrative art and was saying films just going back to 15 seconds long like it was in 1895. I hope not. I feel like, as you say, stories are always going to have a place. They have a nostalgic, potentially nationalistic power, so there's at least some motivation to push storytelling. But I think also, like, people love stories, right?
2: Well, I I I think stories... I mean, it's interesting that you're talking about stories because I I think stories are a means of programming. Like, we program ourselves. We... um, If you think about little children or whatever... Um, that's how you condition and program children. You tell them stories and if you want them to be fearful, you put a wolf in there. And you, <laughs> um, I think what's happening, um, I think that stories will never go away. And, and, I mean, it's proof positive. All you've got to do is turn the news on. We're, we're living a fucking movie right now.
1: Oh, you know yeah, I mean? we are.
2: You know, you know what I mean? Like, so, so you can't say that stories are ever going to go away. The form in, in which we digest them may well shift. Mm. Uh, I think that's what's happening. I think we've entered a new era of storytelling, you know. I'm not trying to say that COVID nineteen like like actually I think Jamie Leonardo we um he called it at at, at our conference, um the Inhuman Screens conference, I think he called it COVID nineteen eighty four. I like that and I like that not because I don't believe it exists or whatever, I just it's just the way we're ingesting the stories around it is is happening in a in a very different way it's actually we're living this strange apocalyptic movie right now it
1: doesn't feel real
0: yeah and i think that's kind of what well, the festival has always been about looking to perspectives of society looking at ways that perspectives that are not mainstream and things that we don't necessarily like or always want to address but always in a fun and enjoyable way and i think we watched Take 48 on the weekend, and there's a lot of films that, while we were discussing how many films are going to be reflective of COVID-19, how many are directly going to address what's going on, and some did, but I think some looked at it indirectly, some looked at it as just the sense of, here's where we are now, without needing to bring the pandemic into the narrative, so it was nice to see that mix, at least in
1: that and, and there were a lot
0: of films, like much more. There were even more than There were so films. many.
1: That was one of the things where I thought felt like the way that nothing's going on um, except online festivals probably helped in some regard, right? Like it seemed like there were a lot that kind of been just from, all from Sydney.
2: Yeah. Our numbers doubled for that. And, um, and that was really interesting because it was so last, was like we're, unfortunately we're a little last minute with everything, but, but that one, we, we really advertised it very last minute. You know, we didn't totally know what the Sony prize was going to be. Good so, prize. Yeah.
1: When I saw the prize, oh, sorry.
2: What is it? A Z? A seven S three. That's yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. When
1: I, When I saw that prize, I was like, "Oh, yeah, I should definitely enter." And then I found out that, and I was also thinking, "Oh, that would be good. That will spark my creativity." I've been being lazy with COVID, and then suddenly it's like, "Oh, it it was today." I just I I just did not follow it. <laughs> I haven't been keeping up with anything, weirdly enough. But apparently, lots of people have been keeping up with things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, sev- if seventy shorts were finished. Take oh,
2: 48. Yeah, it's crazy. and the, But there was a whole bunch that, that registered and didn't do it because of that. They just kind of <laughs> lost track of time.
1: <laughs> that, yeah, I think a lot of us are getting hit with that at the it, moment. One um, day is just
2: sort of melding into another, really. What?
1: So speaking of some of these shorts programs that yeah. you have in this yeah. festival.
3: Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, it's interesting because uh, I know WTF is literally self-explanatory in terms of like what the fuck were they thinking. But the lovesick, uh shorts were Kind of there, but I was interested to see what was your programming choices and to picking these ones.
2: Oh, gee. Um, well, uh, it, it was a combo of Nathan and I as well. So yeah. Nathan would have to be here to, to help me out on this. But um, look, every time we pick the lovesick ones, um, we always sort of um, look for the, you know, try and cherry pick that perversity. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, what's a, What sort of perverted... Or comical, you know, like, um, I love
3: stuff. that stuff is the place where you can, like, outrightly be proud of that and say that quite openly, and it's like a badge of honor, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs>
2: Totally. I mean, once you call a session, love mm-hmm. slash sick. You know, like,
1: you know LSD people know what they're entry. in for. So. I love the the <laughs> just blunt names of the shorts, programs, and stuff. Yeah,
2: cool. Yeah, well, it's yeah, it's it, we, we had to work out ourselves. Like, what the hell are we doing? Because we we knew our curation our programming but we never knew why we were drawn to them so then we we sort of decided to form these little groups and we just thought there's like-minded film sickos out there and yeah
0: (laughs) that's us we're right here um
2: yeah but but we love sick we we usually
3: yeah
2: we we love to try and look for like the sort of perverse stuff that's still still got a discursive edge to it You know, like, uh, I think um, uh, Jan Soldat's films in that one, I think. Um, Yeah. Wanker. Yeah. Um, You know, like, that's a really good example. It's a little bit, um, to me, in a weird way, that has a relationship with Impaled, because it was contextualizing this guy just jerking off, you know. know, (laughs) Sometimes
1: the, the flow of the films just present themselves to you, don't they?
2: <laughs> we just watch it. And we it just goes with I that. We definitely channel our inner perverts and you know, just um, and and still keep a little bit of an academic um, edge to it in there somewhere.
0: Speaking of crazy things and perverse things, and just having a good time. So we did do the Take Forty Eight session the other night, plus all the others. We had a good ten p.m. through two a.m. uh session where we made a film the second time this year with lots of chocolate. So we had all the stars and ate all of them and got a massive sugar high watching all things, because appropriately, because theme for this year, and I think it's a, I liked last year's theme of the card, but this I think was a much more conducive theme to a lot of really more creative and amazing films. Dude, we had the out. best
1: time. It was just more alcohol than we could possibly get through. I woke up on Glenn's couch at like four in the morning and he'd cleaned it all away and I wondered how he could do it. Mystery I ate sci- it all, Chris, he, I yeah. drank it all and I ate it all. Mystery Science Theater 3000, um, no disrespect to the other filmmakers, but, you know, 70 short films is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <of course.
2: laughs> we
0: finished, we're at the other side. Yeah. There, there were creative ways of using marshmallows. People people adopted the theme I found in the film this year more than the card was integrated in the films last year. Like the marshmallows much more an integral part of all the narratives.
2: Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, Totally. I was amazed by that and and I apologize that we put seventy back to back was it, <laughs> it was. The right it, it
0: made for a great
1: night. It it's the yeah. stuff you can do online that you they, can't do. You can pause it if you want person, to. Right? We, we just exactly. we just
0: did it all the way through. We didn't pause we re-round we, we, we one because we found it quite funny we missed a few of the things, but we watched them all. We rewound it
1: when Mystery Science Theatre turned into like a panel discussion and the films <laughs> vanished into the background of drunken haze. Yeah. After <laughs>
0: our one we had a self-congratulatory pan in the back and yep. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah it's funny because I, you know, we set up directors for that. So we got Chris and, and Lauren that do that. I only sort of oversee it. And um, so I only got to watch personally, I only got to watch like half of them and which is good. Like, I don't want to influence anyone on anything. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I definitely watched the worst ones. Uh, because, nice. Because we had to, that was one of the things that I was consulted about. They're like, Hey, have a look at these worst 20. What do you reckon? Do we leave them out or put them in and, so what you're oh, saying is what, you haven't seen our film. Did you submit them? Yeah. Did you, it's got to be one of the the better <laughs> ones. <laughs> Did you know. include the
1: worst twenty? We well, must yeah, know. Yeah,
2: that was the point. That was the point I was going to make. That I made a call going, "Man, if this is the worst twenty,
1: like it's pretty good."
2: Yeah, I can't wait to. So, so I actually got to sit down myself. Um, Nice. Uh, might might do that tonight and watch watch it all the way through. So, um, I thought you were
1: going to say we're going to have the bonus, the the worst twenty. No, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> no, no. I, mean, you know, I was I just
2: did. surprised that because like um even the worst or, like I had a really good time watching apparently what was considered the worst twenty um uh, and that's why I was like well this you know this is a, a friendly competition you know yeah sure like Sony's putting this thing up. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, let's do our best to include everything and everyone like the whole point of a competition like that is to be included especially now
1: right yeah
2: of course absolutely absolutely i'm just so amazed how well people can do in in 48 hours i just i'm I'm blown away by that and i also am a bit pissed off because some of my students can't make films that good (laughs) and they get a they get six months (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like these people, get, uh, and sometimes my students that can't do it in six months do better in forty-eight hours. I'm um, so, what the hell is going on? Is it is it like where film is better if you don't think about it? Like-
0: <laughs> well, the, it was about the thing. It was, it was just this impetus where we got, we had the sugar, we went out and got it. Pascal's marshmallows did insanely well over the past
1: little bit. Good for them. But well, think- we saw so many Pascal. The whole thing was a Pascal's ad. But no, 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 I think I think maybe it's just that it's like you've got the incentive, and this is fun, as opposed to like,
3: oh, my assignment. Yeah, you're yeah. gonna make a film. Was, this is yeah, like, yeah.
1: oh yeah, yeah, great. Make a movie in forty-eight hours. Doesn't matter. It's a friendly competition. I should,
2: I should do that to my class. I should be like, all right, the, the the one you got forty-eight hours to make your make it short, and the one who does it doesn't have to pay their fees this year. Yes.
0: <laughs> but like, going off it, like we watched them all back to back, and there were a few where the narrative didn't go in a particular direction, or there were a few that were quite similar in tone and style and what they were going for, and that's to be expected with 70 films about marshmallows which all include the same line that are all less than three minutes long, but there was momentum, I had fun we sat through, watched all in one sitting, we had a good time, I'm glad they were not sort of all cut it was nice just to see, I recognised a few people I worked with one of the actresses in another film, which is in SF3, and just to see, oh here's kind of the weird things people are doing, so a lot of them by consequence and by design and evidently had to be done in the confines of their home so it was just here's what we have about and here's what we're doing and i, I liked it. i love that perspective it was
1: a cool initiative i'm glad we uh, have it a second year
2: yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of the things that has grown and it, uh, it has potential to grow quite large well, too.
1: Well, you know, when we were talking before about the state of things in COVID-19 and where film was going, I was thinking like maybe if COVID-19 mutates into a horrific super virus and we never have film festivals again, or when the nuclear bombs start going off and we all have to go outside and radioactive masks and we're living together in bunkers mm-hmm. underground and stuff Very um sunny, then we can do yeah <laughs> you've been uh, about this have not you chris yeah, of course yeah chris and that's when <laughs> that's that's when recording from take 48 it will won't be just like 48 hours it'll be like you've got six months and that's the city underground film festival program <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah.
1: it's like all the films you made for
2: Quite possibly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's uh, <laughs> quite possible. I
0: <laughs> <laughs> think Marshmallow's the aesthetic of some of my more favourite films will carry on into general society.
1: Maybe, maybe. Maybe these will become foundational religious texts.
2: It would definitely give the underground film festival reason to. hello,
1: other festivals
0: and patrons. Nice of you to join us here. We've been here before. Underground.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, man. Uh, shit's fucked.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's-
1: I'm glad you're going ahead.
0: Some normalcy, Stephen. you brought some normalcy to my <laughs> September. Otherwise, it just would have been ah. Uh, Another what is it Monday today? I I don't know.
2: Can I take this completely off topic a little? Please, please do,
1: please
0: please.
2: Well, you seem to have thought about this a bit, Chris, and you're into stories and stuff. So, what's your take on our situation right now? Like, like let let out like understanding what you're going to say. It can be completely wildest. Yeah. Can I just contextualize this too? I I listened to an ABC radio show yesterday about conspiracy theory and I was kind of a bit pissed off because I love conspiracies. And they were just talking about what demographic response to conspiracies. And it was in relation to immunizations or whatever. Yeah, And and so it just really missed me a little because I'm just like, hang on, this course, you can never, you know, having discussion around shit, you know.
1: And look, I mean, I think there's value in a lot of conspiracy theories, but I I understand why ABC took the approach they did, because I think we're reaching a strange point where conspiracies aren't fun anymore because so many people who you would think know better are buying into some of the dumbest of all time. I just yeah, assumed yeah. the like, 5G Q- stuff
0: was a joke. I couldn't believe yeah, the scale yeah, of protests the protests around
1: them. What the hell? Exactly. The 5G oh. thing was completely stupid. Can I tell you a um, friend's
2: theory on the 5G conspiracy? Yeah. Because I'm with you. It's like, when I heard it, I'm like, this is fucking retarded. Like, who the hell? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It? It's um, so stupid. But I had a friend who had an alternate, which is a uh, theory, which is very plausible, man. He's yeah. Like, he's like, no, no, no. Uh, so he was saying that the 5G conspiracies that were out there were planted intentionally because a lot of the towers and stuff that were set up were set up, especially like in the UK and the US and stuff were by Huawei. Um, mm-hmm. So for the government to cover up them destroying the towers with thermite and whatever not, that they put out all these crazy conspiracies about COVID and five G. So then it'll seem like a group of crazy people just took down that tower or burnt down that tower. But when you go to investigate it, it's like obviously being thermited. You know what I mean? <laughs> like who the fuck has access to thermite? Right. <laughs> so so it's a very plausible. I just that's a cool theory. <laughs> I enjoy that storytelling aspect of it. You know yeah, I mean, conspiracies.
1: Yeah, I, I just think with what you were saying before, um, it, the 5G thing, yeah, it's crazy that that's gotten as big as it has. But yeah, like at Sapphire, I remember the moon landing conspiracies thing. Like it's fun, it's interesting, it can be thought, it can be really dumb, like who could believe that? And it can be like it, genuinely thought provoking, that kind of like exploration of conspiracy theories. But, you know, I was talking to someone the other day who their relationship recently broke up because their partner went all in on QAnon.
2: Oh, right. <laughs>
1: So I think that's happening to so many people now, and people are getting anxious about, is this going to significantly sway the election? Probably not, but that that's happening, you know, that that's just a random thing that happened to someone I know that I heard about last week. I reckon there's tons of these stories popping out right now, and maybe people just aren't in the mood to treat conspiracy like fun. They're now just thinking, like, what if genuinely the world's going to be further screwed, Think, because people are buying into it. i think
2: this. you're right I, I think you're right in the way of conspiracy theory is like lsd or any other drug it's fun but if you don't if you can't handle it you're
3: <laughs> yeah fine. and you have
1: to do it you have to do it maybe with some friends. judgment yeah yeah with some friends who'll stop you from believing you're actually talking to god
2: yep. probably, you know,
1: yeah you need to you need to keep in touch with reality and yeah. right now the internet and social media is clearly something that the human race doesn't yet have the knowledge to grapple with properly and it's resulted in a lot of people going all the way down the rabbit hole that's
0: generally it, 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 accepted that one of these things is going to be right or have a hint of truth through it that all based in some form of truth <laughs> and for some it may very well be the case but the, the idea in it itself can be very destructive or very problematic or just misleading
2: yeah it's really interesting because i i completely get that i completely get see um this is what happens though when you control people's thinking you, know? you
1: say you can't think this
2: no 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 I, i'm saying that i've written about this about this sort of entering into hyper reality and this is what's happening now where where Entering into unreality. Um, and I mean, for people to believe some of the shit that yeah. is out there. Um, Did you
1: watch Hyper Normalization, by the way? Uh,
2: no. Oh,
1: cool. It's the British guy who makes. Um, I'm, I'm just looking him up. Not I've Adam got, Curtis, is it? It is Adam Curtis. Oh,
2: yes, yes, yeah. It's so Adam. Yeah, I really got it. Not a few years
1: ago, like right around the time Trump was elected, I think, maybe like a year yeah. later. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, totally. And, and I mean, if you look, go if you go back to Baldry, like for them, the Twin Towers were that. Up. Right. Um,
1: the world of the Unreal.
2: Exactly. Because it was the first time that we were living tragedy through visual imagery that we weren't, there to I mean, in physically
1: i guess vietnam and such would, would be some level of of that entry point to that right but 9 is a, a whole new thing with this sheer cinematic spectacle of the actual attack. yeah yeah
2: yeah completely completely and that's that's kind of what would they talk about mm-hmm. and yeah so so i think when you enter into this sort of territory where i'm I, like I, I i think we've entered a territory where truth and fiction are redundant mm. not not, not not, not that one is more valid than the other. It's actually, they both have, it's redundant. Like, you can't talk about things in terms of truth or fiction, well, uh, truth or lies. We whatever. have um,
1: more governments than ever, like, more, or at least more governments than, than I can remember since I was alive being, I mean, everyone's always manipulating the truth and the image that they present to the world and that they present to their citizens. But right now it feels like we have a lot of nations actively fighting against the truth, trying to create a world where, and succeeding where truth and reality don't matter.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, just listen to fucking Trump, man. Like look at his hyperbolic statements. He's done more for the black people than, since and believe it all one hundred percent. And yet that one black guy
0: at rallied. Let, let, let's, let's right. Clearly <laughs> gone.
1: Clearly. Yeah. And we had but, but we had Herman Cain die of COVID nineteen and then have his Twitter account after he dies continue spreading like COVID nineteen is a hoax. Stuff. <laughs> like just I, I, the I reality that why I didn't hear that does moment. not matter at all. Sorry,
0: what Glenn, what were you saying? I, I heard that he passed away. I didn't realise about his Twitter account Yeah, he died of
1: COVID because of insane.
2: Wow. Uh,
1: so, so I, I don't know,
2: but, but I guess I was trying to get to the point is that we're not equipped mentally to deal with c- Cause on one hand, you're, you're completely right. And, and this is, I, I've written about this in the past where even Boltrellard says this, that that the, the, that the simulacra, the role of simulacra is to hide the fact that there never was an original and a fake, mm. that there never was truth or fiction. It always was like this. We have been conditioned to believe in the idea of 100% truth. Hmm. And so mentally, we're not equipped to deal with this territory of the hyperreal.
1: I think mentally, we're also just not equipped to deal with psychopathy on this level, you know, being led by completely lying psychopaths all over the world like the it's wow. you know i mean i'm sure it, it's happened many many times before just the the sheer bold-faced manipulation and it's like you must buy into these two poles mm. both of which are psychopathic manipulators both of which have people like that leading them you know and people like people like to believe in someone you know people like to fall into one line of when there's the artificial either or thing put up and none of the choices right now are good
2: no 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 but one one thing that, that's for certain too um and people don't speak about is that the the our notion of i think that there needs to be some psychological investigations into our notions of truth and how we develop notions of truth and part of that comes from community and peers and i mean adam curtis sort of detailed this in century of the self you know mm. um yeah and um and I think that's part of the problem is that we're not not understanding that exactly. I mean, if you think about, just think about COVID, how it has been presented to us from the beginning. I remember at the beginning, my partner was having arguments with people online where people are going, I'm in the medical profession and I can fucking tell you that this is nothing more than a cold. It's all being blown out of proportion. I had someone who is now, I shit you not,
1: doing scientific work to help find a a cure for it tell me in like February when I was reading some stuff about it and being like, this looks actually worrying this, this like, if you look at these statistics, this doesn't seem good. And they're like, you know, well, it's a cold. And um,
0: I've still heard that people get the flu more every day. Yeah. Glenn, Glenn, this is a mutual friend
1: of of ours. Oh, This person was, yeah, this person in February was like, oh, you know, we, we just don't have immunity to it yet. Probably this many people would die of the flu every year if we didn't. And it's just, come on.
0: But the flu yeah. is, there's many differences here. It spreads differently. It's treatable in a different manner. And it doesn't have the impact of shutting down entire world,
1: entire economies.
0: <laughs>
2: exactly. Yeah.
1: But yeah. um, I, I mean, the obvious tell was like, if this was just a, a cold, would China have shut down Wuhan? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it was pretty self-evident. And wasn't it? But it was and, like China
1: is a different world. It's like no one pays attention. You go, Oh, that's just China. They're just weird. It
2: Does
1: not matter that everyone no, was traveling
0: no. uh, from China around that time and yeah. that there was a potential major opportunity for spread well, of the virus? Actually,
1: you know, I read something interesting, um, which would be interesting slash horrifying, I'm sure, to you, Stefan, as a film festival programmer, that it's theorized that the, the big spreading event for the U.S. was Sundance. <laughs> because they say that a lot of people had uh, reported a much worse than usual Sundance flu this year with difficulty breathing and bad coughs.
2: Oh, Jesus. There you go. <laughs> Big international
1: gathering right at the time when, you know, sort of just before Wuhan would be going on lockdown. Yeah. Actually, um,
0: I actually, on this, I'd love to ask you about it. So, whether it's a film festival or not, like every event organised in the country right now, whether it's in a couple of weeks or a couple of months, I'm looking at having an event going in person online, have to weigh out the cost benefit, who's going to come, but also the perspective for um, a potential health fallout among any number of patrons. And I know this is a contentious subject, but I wonder, I know if you've, a lot of spaces are having events more and more. Some more pubs are opening and restaurants. A couple of festivals are having events in person coming up. Some are still having events online or other events in person or are doing live streams with some events in person. And it's just that I mean, you're a major event organizer and every, and you made a call. Um, to make it accessible to everyone, some months out. Um, so MIFT did the same thing. A lot of festivals are having events online, in respectively, in coming months to come, still. And I'm, I'm just, my, I guess my, my question is. This, the mental space all the folks in this position are in now and the calculus is going through everyone's heads and i'm sure that everyone is discussing amongst themselves how do we approach this um what are we looking at in the next two weeks and next two months and what, what's the thought processes you think behind um everyone in this position right now
2: oh gee so, some are, um you know i've spoken to some film festivals um that are just staunchly I think I think there's a lot of emotion involved and and people are uh, I mean we wanted nothing more than to have a physical festival it was not the responsible thing or the logical thing to do in the middle of a fucking pandemic (laughs)
1: like um, like these sickos physically sick yeah
2: yeah. (laughs) some people are staunchly um holding on to the physical festival thing you know i got i got a friend in in the yukon who runs dawson international film festival and he was Very just nice. like I ain't, I ain't going online you know So oh, he's the guy we stole the 48 hour film challenge from because he, he had we had done it there and went oh we'll steal it from he's doing a drive-in i mean they can because they have like heaps of space there so and their local radio stations um uh, transmitting the films and stuff so mm. Um, So they're getting around, but again, it was driven from this like, no, we're not, we're not bowing down to it. We're gonna keep our festival going even if it means forty people in a cinema.
1: Mostly the little guys won't be able to do that though, right? Like that's right. um, Venice are just forging ahead because screw it, we can do what we want. But like they're taking a big risk. Yeah, Yeah, and running the yeah.
2: And they have to take specific measures, but yeah, the little guys, I, uh, you know, I find it. I, I don't know how the little guys would do it. Like, um, mm-hmm.
0: I mean, it's so different for so many different spaces. I mean, you said, yeah, stuff is so intrinsic. As we discussed in previous years, it's so wonderful spilling out and being at the Factory Theatre, um, other spaces. Um, a lot of festivals like just want to go online. I was speaking to the director of the Melbourne Queer Film Festival and he made the point that um, so many members of their community those who regularly come to the screenings are so very conscious of being autoimmune autoimmune compromisation that it was such a natural thing for them to know we already go online and whereas others are in the space where no, we want a festival to happen. And it's a big thing whether it's Venice and Khan, they want it in person because that is their cachet. And so some, does it, some festivals will just say, no, we'll do it next year. But uh, others, it makes sense. Yeah, do an event online, make it accessible, have people see it. And, but then we were talking to the uh, National from the City Film Festival. He said, we said, we, we're going to be online, but next year, we're absolutely having an event in person. We don't want to have this online component. I think stuff. may No one knows, though it's a position where we're having to go you know, online now but want to have the event in person next to like even if there is an online component it's going to be geared towards like seeing everyone again and being in the same space
2: well that, that, that's what i'm hoping will happen i'm hoping that we we um cherry pick the best things of the online process whether that means we have the same films uh so let's say the shorts program because we only did shorts the same short programs can still play at the festival, but then also be accessible online at the same time.
1: I mean, um, a big quick consideration is going to be how much content you actually have available next year, right? Like how much new stuff is actually going to be produced in the next 12 months.
2: Yeah, that's a really good point. Yep, absolutely. And right now, this year, there was no shortage whatsoever of short films. There might be next year. It might be next year. (laughs) Or it's just going to be all lockdown stories. Animation made from home. Animation,
0: Animation stories made in one set, um, low budget to mid-budget stuff. Uh, Very strongly COVID-themed things, it could be.
2: It'll it'll be great to find the next Dan Harmon, you know?
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah
2: like on that note we did uh in our first year i think we played the adventure time guys short before adventure time became big oh really that's cool yeah it was called two in the a.m p.m
1: yeah Um, yeah awesome
2: yeah um it's totally soft
1: stuff stuff, though the early like his style even the adventure time pilot honestly could have played some of the self shots programs
2: yeah yeah totally Uh, a lot of these guys that are on adult swim and stuff like that that are quite big, not that Adventure Time's on Adult Swim, but um, yeah, they're totally like soft weirdos, you know, that just yeah. like, soft commercial. Have,
1: you, have you seen his new show on Netflix, where it's like, he's at, someone Trumbull, um he's animated, Pendleton Ward is his name, and he he's animated some guy's podcast, where it's mostly just like, talking about drugs, and it's weird, trippy animations
2: Is this That's Dan who, Harmon, or?
1: No, this is Pendleton Ward, who created oh, Adventure gosh. Time oh, That's so his he- follow-up to Adventure Time, a Netflix show with awesome. an animated podcast about with like stoned people talking about what whatever crosses their mind. I love yeah, it. <laughs> it, it, it's cool. It's
2: it's totally soft in the vibe. You know, you know that's that, that's see, this is where I'm getting coming full circle to you know where where things are heading. I would love to see Netflix invest more in weirdo shit like that. You know, yeah, but it's <laughs> rare
1: that weirdos hit the mainstream level of success that they're able to. Keep, do something like that on a good budget
2: you know and and it's most really you know in defense of netflix it's most really not netflix like i work with an australian producer that i hit him up with an anthology idea i'm like oh you know like wtf or whatever is so good at our festival why can't we pitch an anthology to netflix and get these these guys that are just doing their shit this would Mm -hmm. go crazy on netflix and he was just like i don't see any value in it this is stupid it's just it's really old dinosaur thinking australia
1: the, though is it's such a risk-averse industry
2: it's it's ridiculous it's, it's a it, dead
1: industry it's not an industry because no, there's no risk taking
2: that that uh, you you'll, you hit the nail on the head man and 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 hate to say this but you know i will blanket like th- this is like 99 of producers in this country um, maybe 99.9 let's just include everyone 100 percent of producers in this country <laughs> And yeah risk adverse like that which means they have no career like they're, they're dead in the water like
1: when you are hungry and desperate as australian filmmakers are you have to take risks
2: yeah it's, it's the only way yeah you have to be they're, noticed they're, this is the problem they're not hungry they're, yeah. they're not hungry and desperate they, they, they pretend they cry like they're hungry and desperate. We're really they're fucking sitting comfortably on the stupid drama dollar of Screen Australia.
1: Yeah, <laughs> look, if if I um to cross more lines, Film Fight Club shouldn't cross <laughs> Are there lines? Are there really? Are there any lines? <laughs> we spoke a fair bit recently about the honestly goddamn stupid. Actually, this reminds me of something else related to our conspiracy th- talk just before. Um, but we, we spoke recently, uh, uh, on the show a bit about the stupid controversy about mukbang, what, um, what mukbang? Did, did, okay. there was a short that Eliza Scanlon wa- made, which, um, for various reasons, people found offensive and the, the family law tried to cancel or Michelle law <laughs> tried to cancel oh. the person who made it on Twitter. And then it became a culture war that Andrew Bolt got involved about. Look at how dumb the left is. He was kind of right. <laughs> um, uh, and I, I hate agreeing just, with stupid. Bolt. The
0: problem with Bolt's column yeah, none was of that us... it wasn't evident from his column, and in fairness, also from Michelle Law's commentary, that I well, actually watched it. the film. If you've seen the film, say so and make it evident what your actual
1: issue with it, it is. People we spoke to, who are like hardcore social justice warriors, who saw the film, said it is not offensive. Or like they, right. it, it, it kind of is, but like not. It's not worth like to such a small extent that it was not worth the controversy yeah yeah, yeah a, a point that um one of these people made to me when we were talking about it was that the real controversy should have been that eliza scanlon won the short film award because they were saying it was like like here's a, a uh, look it could be the best short film i haven't seen all the shots or any of the shots really be on some clips of mukbang um but i would say broadly it's isn't the point of a short film award to get up and comers <laughs> to be noticed? Yeah. Yeah. Like they got a, a actor who's in Hollywood Productions who is already having the you know, the narrative written around like the, the neck leading in a big new film that was going to have a Sydney Film Festival premiere. And, you know, he we have a jury of like George Miller and Brian Brown and stuff, and they chose to select <laughs> her to win. Even if the film's the best, it gets into the political thing where it's like, no, give yeah, someone the yeah, layout. Yeah,
2: totally. Yeah, no, but that's yeah. This is um, welcome to the Australian industry.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just thought that encapsulates the problems with it. It's like it's the in crowd that will only select the in crowd, and everyone's comfortable. And yeah,
2: but ha- this is this is one of the good things I think that will come out of it. Like, like if if um if the Australian film industry wasn't dead before, um. It will be dead after COVID. And, and it needs to die. To
1: yeah.
2: Rebirth. Um, hopefully, and,
1: hopefully, there's desire for a rebirth. Yeah,
2: because th- those old dinosaurs, like, you know, as much as I love Brian Brown and stuff, like, God, just look at fucking Palm Beach, man. Like, yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess. Yes. Um, I, I, I love Ice like House, but you know about <laughs>
0: those <laughs> types of bands? But, I mean, to qualify Chris's earlier point, and this actually just also underlines how frustrating
1: the state of the industry is. It's I, I not as made... shot at Eliza Scanlon and George Miller or Brian Brown, for the record. I like all three of them.
2: Yeah, except for Palm Beach.
0: <laughs> I, I never made this connection, but um, Eliza Scanlon she didn't win the best short film award. She won the best director award. The best short film award winner who got no right. She won best director, and who though. I yes still is the it. personal like who you
1: are have the
0: anyway and who i never actually i i didn't really look at the coverage because there wasn't really any coverage of the best film winner the best film winner is actually a lady i work with and we were at i didn't know about this she she hadn't raised it at work um i was at Knox bar this weekend for one of the read to me sessions and she did a presentation and it would have been amazing if this filmmaker who doesn't have near the traction of eliza Scanlon, who actually won the major award had gone in publicity but no it got caught up in And A, Eliza Scanlon winning an award, she she deserved it fine. Uh, Again, and I would be able to judge it had I had the opportunity to see it, but they didn't allow folks to... See the movie. Uh, we we did reach out, but the fact that um, this controversy got swept up and where it should have been, no, this up and coming filmmaker won the major award. Why wasn't this more talked about? Why was it this more focused industry? And why wasn't this more the focus of the film festivals and others? Plaudits and publicity. Hey, yeah, a uh,
1: new emerging filmmaker won a major award. This is what we should be talking about.
2: I agree. Yeah.
1: You know, on um, just a completely irrelevant tangent that got sparked when I was talking about the mukbang controversy, did you guys hear about the the current ongoing thing about Cuties on Netflix? Oh, uh, um, I haven't seen okay, so controversy and I've seen the poster. I, Don't- the poster was really, really dumb move by Netflix. What I've heard is, okay, that people have who generally haven't seen the film, which I've heard is not offensive at least not on the level that people are blowing this up into it's this pedophile panic thing about this french movie which is about yeah it's about an african immigrant who ends up in like a twerking group of kids right and like competing in dance competitions and stuff and people have blown it into a thing about netflix is making a pedophile film and they're getting senators to write into netflix and like um it, it's gotten way, way, way the out of hand. I wonder how many have actually watched the movie is the thing. I'm yeah, very, so I can't comment, but yeah, you've got to see I've it. heard from people who seem to be rational about this, that it's not offensive or it is not a, a pedophile film. But we had that and we also had the controversy over um, with Miff, the trouble with being born, um, yeah, which Virat Nehru saw and he's, he's left us now, listeners, by the way. If you're wondering about his absence from this chat, he had to go but he saw and he did not think he personally didn't find it to be offensive either. Um, I'm just wondering now if like that conspiracy QAnon thing where there's so much moral panic about pedophilia right now that people are seeing it in in places where it isn't really there. Um, If we've reached the point now where like you just cannot address the subject of sexualization of children or sexuality like blossoming sexuality or anything like that without people accusing you of being a pedophile like you can't do that in a non-pedophilic way like that subject is just 100% gone off the table if you have a movie that features kids dancing Netflix won't buy the rights to it like I just feel like the conspiracy thing has is, is reached the point where it's affecting culture in ways that aren't fun you know
2: mm. it's, it's- I mean, it's a, it's a double-edged sword there because, I mean, Disney's been sort of subtextually pedophilic for a long time.
1: <laughs> True, yeah. <laughs> so, That's
2: you know, the thing. But they allow Disney stuff. Yeah.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, because when people raise points about unhealthy objectification of children, like, they do have a point. It's just, though, the, like, where it becomes a witch hunt, which yeah. is what it's become, I think.
2: I, th- I think polemicizing anything... You know is not healthy because it shuts down discussion it's um and we were bound to to hit another era of this sort of polemicizing um but you know usually this sort of polemicist stuff happens around wartime mm. if you think about Vietnam War and stuff, there was a lot of like really strong the seventies sixties were really strong sort of polemic times um
1: yeah, a friend of mine when I was talking about. 18 months ago I was talking to a friend who's now experiencing the real covid life in Melbourne um about the state of the world and he and how it, you know it seemed to be no hope and no future and what the hell's going on and he said yeah but maybe this is just what it feels like to live through the 1960s
2: yeah 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 I I wouldn't be surprised you know one of my conspiracy theories is that we're we're definitely heading to a hot war at some point point. Um, everything's pointing to that it does um, seem
1: that way, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, we've had so it,
0: some pretty serious um, skirmishes, confrontations over a lot of borders, which have gone underreported.
1: Yeah, right. Um, a, a lot of a lot of bold acts from the major powers recently.
2: Is that pre- between China and uh, China and India, India? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, nice, yeah. But like you, you throw in climate change into the mix. God damn. Yeah. If you talk about like scarcity of food and regions becoming uninhabitable. Oh yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Like there's no with the level of tension we have now um, and that happening, I can't see any way we don't have a hot war.
2: Mm. No, t- totally true. And if, if that kind of happens, um, Australia's in a bizarre position too. You know, because we're yeah, we're sort of you know allied with the US and but very close to China and you know,
1: that's why I don't understand why scott Morrison is running with the path he's taking honestly like i think um
2: you mean the anti-china
1: yeah i think it makes i i wonder if there's anything more to it than america's going anti-china let's fall in line with that because it doesn't seem strategically smart to me in the long term i would be hedging my bets we are a small country (laughs) close to china you know (laughs)
2: Oh, but but look, the the reality is um, when you when you break power down into its simplest form, uh, there's nothing else that can happen because we're Commonwealth, you know. We're, we're like, what, what are we, what are we to do? You know what I mean? Like, um, there's just politically no way our power goes back to the Commonwealth. So yeah. Uh, you can't you can't kind of unless we secede or something you know, which, yeah. which is fine like by, by
1: which point
0: we have our own head of state like that's that's just okay guys we can make it's, it's not a priority for me but we can make that happen
2: yeah, yeah. i think western australia and queensland are, are heading that in here
0: <laughs> yeah i, I, I want to see us as a re- republic before i see queensland and WA and we make jokes about queensland and wa but you know for australia we like them one. So, we've talked a lot about SUFF. For those who are going online and joining us, watching all the shorts and Take 48, how do we get there? How do we find it?
2: So, you just go to um, suff, au, and um, it's just so easy. You can just go on there, and buy tickets, it takes you straight to the page. Um, and we're on till um, the 20th. So, um, yeah, go on and um, get your alcohol and your chips and. Sugar, <laughs> it's the way, uh,
0: yeah. do what we did recommend get a bunch it. of friends over or well, too many as long as you social distance and get some snacks and some beers and just get it get the program pass and just watch a bunch of shorts mix it up a little watch them take pretty eight, watch them love sick and it's pretty fun like our late night early morning sesh it's what stuff was, was all about we i remember the pajama parties; so much fun we basically had that you now. can have your own pajama
1: party you have yeah.
0: your own pajama party and then we'll do it again probably next year, um, in the basement in the bowels of the factory theatre.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.
0: And thanks for going online and putting it together. It's nice to have stuff again. It's a bit of normalcy against a very abnormal time. <laughs> it's, it's a bit of abnormal normalcy in a very abnormal
2: time. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Well look you guys stay safe, eh? Hey?
1: Yeah, you too, man. Okay. Right. See Season. you later. All the best.
0: Welcome back to Film Fight Club, where we are talking all things Bill and Ted Face
1: the Music, the newest time travel themed film in cinemas. There are many. The newest in a very long at this point chain in movies about alternate timelines, perhaps designed as a answer to the realization that we're in one of the worst possible timelines. But don't let my cynicism stop you. Here's Bill and Ted to put a smile on your face with an optimistic take on the future.
0: Yeah, perfect timing with a film they've been calling for for the better part of two decades. There's been a bit of a cult move to make this happen. It has happened. It's here. It stars Alex Winter, who was always credited first in the Bill and Ted movies. Not in number two.
1: I watched it the other day. Keanu had usurped him by that point. Oh, damn it. Number one, he was credited first. I like that there
0: was a time where Alex Winter was a bigger star than Keanu Reeves.
1: Might I get oh, the ball rolling on our thoughts on this film by saying perhaps he should be? <laughs> yeah, he's good in this. We'll we'll get to that. I'll, I should let you introduce. Yeah, the just the film. This most excellent journey. This most excellent time, journey, dude. Time and space. Totally non-bogus, Ted. Ted. Hey, dude. Anyway, We 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 we're just gonna do our
0: best uh, non-jotty Utah impressions. Yeah, this is just a continuation of the Bill & Ted franchise from the late 80s and early 90s. It stars Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter, but also Samara Weaving and Christian Schnall and quite a few others in returning stars. They play the daughters of Bill & Ted. And Uh, and of the historical babes. I rewatched the other two recently, so they're still relatively fresh in my mind. Yeah, so basically Bill & Ted are washed up, right? Yeah, they're washed up stars. They're not the glorious wild stallions
1: with a Y that they were. And it's, how come we haven't changed the future? How come we haven't written a song that will unite all of humanity like we were supposed to? So Bill and Ted confront the disappointments of middle age and the horrors of aging. They,
0: they don't look too bad for guys in their late 50s. They don't. It's, it's
3: more like a three-fourth life crisis because I won't even call it a midlife crisis. It's more than a midlife crisis, it's past that. Like a- no,
1: Keanu Reeves will live forever, man. Oh, yeah, yeah as far, by his standards, it's definitely a midlife. Um, <laughs> he lives so, a very, he lives awesome lifestyle. Um, broadly, what yeah. did we all think of this? Well, I think Virat
0: should stop because we were. I think the reasons we were chatting over Aaron will become apparent.
3: I actually enjoyed this film, and hang on, hang on before you guys be like, ah, oh, how could how could you? Yes, this allowed to film. like it. Absolutely, okay
0: like a movie where it's okay to t- t- tell you why you're wrong. No, you're not <laughs> you're wrong.
3: <laughs> okay. I agree, this movie makes no sense, and the previous two actually had very good logical reasons why things happened. This movie, on the other hand, has none of that. This is completely nonsensical. But I felt, given the time that it came out, this is more a timing issue. And I think this is the right movie for our times, where almost nothing makes sense, and it is kind of slapstick, but not really. It is so tongue in cheek that you can't differentiate irony from when it is trying to be tongue-in-cheek and when it's actually just being completely nonsensical. Well,
1: okay. the, the original Bill and Ted movies had an approach which is arguably is okay. one of the better ways to make a comedy on film, which is not necessarily trying to make you laugh all the time with jokes, but just striking a consistently funny or weird tone. You know, the, like, the general gist of it is always funny, even though it is not always trying to make you laugh. And we have to make a
0: distinction between the stoner movies of the 80s and 90s and their reverence versus just the nonsensicality and irreverence that uh, a lot of films try to do now to imitate the likes of Dude, Where's My Car? and this. On the other two, I really liked the first two Bill and Ted films. The first one, less so, was original. The second one was incredibly visually creative. Great. This this is just coasting on the appeal of the
1: other two. Yeah, I would say 100% that this, though, fits the mold of that classic stoner movie, as opposed to something like Anchorman. It's not the more modern type of comedy. This is sort of coasting on the vibe and not going really out of its way all the time. In some ways, this does feel successful in what they were attempting to do, in that it is that strange coasting on a vibe there was a moment midway through where I leant over and, and whispered, you know, like, this is really weird. Like, it does feel strange in the way that the Bill and Ted movies did, but only to a point when you realize how familiar it is. You were very right, Glenn, to point out how incredibly creative the second one is. I love Bill and Ted too. It's a great, very underrated film. The Bergman parodies,
0: yeah. the battleship scene, still the best um, iteration of the death symbol in comedy.
1: Bill and Ted 2 is like gremlins 2 or something it's like that era of sequels where they just go we're not interested in rehashing the original people will go and see it let's go wild right throw out a ton of ideas bill and ted 2 is shockingly creative visually as well as conceptually the time travel hijinks in the climax of Bill and Ted 2 are some of the best I've ever seen in any film.
0: And for all you Rick and Morty so fans who love some of the visual creativity in um, some of the dream episodes, that is... Guess what? Bill and Ted on, did it first! They, yeah, they, It's actually a parody of to Bill and Ted's bogus journey. They were creative. This one, there were individual scenes really really liked. I'd point to the scene that's widely used in the trailer where they're going to the future and they're buff prison versions of themselves. There's one that's not in the trailer where they're very British, which is very funny, and I like a couple of weird orders <laughs> go funny. back in time. But those were like I could count the scenes I
1: liked on one hand. I was enjoying it for the first 20 25 minutes. Okay, I think that the thing that all revivals have to answer is why do a revival? I would definitely ask this question of Bill and Ted, too, because the ending if of Bill and
3: wanted it, the people want this, that's not film. good enough.
1: Arrested Development shouldn't have come back. For, as a big oh, okay. Most things shouldn't come back. Right. It's a, it, whether or not people want not them. Good. It, the I, role of the of artist is not necessarily to give people what they want or are asking for but what they don't know they want I think Bill & Ted 3 revival could have worked I even think it could have worked with this concept but not it quite like not this not as
3: much of a cash grab as people think it is I still think this had enough of originality and trying to at least do something different even though it didn't succeed most of the time it didn't entirely feel like it is trying to just coast on the first two films and their success for me
0: for me, it's a cash I don't think, think that that's it. I it's think a nostalgia that's, tour, awesome. which is what most revivals are. It's what the guys, the guys in it wanted to make one of these for ages. Keanu Reeves obviously wanted to have a good time. Alex Winter's been pushing this for years and years, and it actually shows in the film. Reeves is enjoying it, but Winter is so goddamn happy to be headlining this film. It shows in his performance, he's having time. Every scene, he's invested, he's loving it.
1: His charisma is contagious in it, I think a little more than Reeves, to be honest. Completely. The big takeaway of this for me was more movies with Alex Winter, please. When you were talking about that prison guard sequence, that just reminded me of how when you see the big scale scary, mean, pumped up, jacked, Bill and Ted, Alex went as Bill, right? Yeah. Yeah. Bill is actually convincing and funny in that role. And Ted is like, oh, look, it's Keanu Reeves in the suit. He is in the mode he's been in, in a lot of recent Keanu Reeves films, not John Wick, where he just can't bring enough intensity. And look, I love Keanu Reeves, but he's just not acting very well. But uh, he's totally getting showed up by his daughter doing an impression of him. wasn't it samara weaving playing bill's daughter their scenes were fun they they was playing one particularly interesting rendition of an historical figure and another which was quite good Mm. but but yeah alex winter carried the entire movie he was funny he was emoting which keanu reeves is sort of half doing alex winter's great it just makes you sad that he'd never had much of a career Um, I feel like he should start getting cast and stuff all the time now. He's great.
0: He does a lot of non-film things, and he's great. I liked him in this a lot. And he also does a lot of films that haven't got as much attention as Keanu Reeves' work over the past 30 years.
3: Maybe the best thing that would come out of this is that Alex Winter might still headline stuff. I mean, I hope. (laughs) Actually, Alex Winter's revival and not Bill and Ted as a franchise.
1: Going back to what I was saying before about why do a revival, Right. The ending of Bill and Ted 2 basically- Tied everything up. Tied everything up, right? In order to have Bill and- There's no world building in this really. Yeah. In order for Bill and Ted 3 to work, it essentially begins with a massive retcon right? Like the whole, the way that we've defined how Bill and Ted's level of success and the place they're at now is really a retcon on what we were told. I know that these movies aren't meant to be taken seriously. So you could say this whole thing is just nitpicking, but if you're a fan of the original movies, you basically have to be able to buy into this, right? So for the first 20 or 30 minutes, I wasn't thinking about this because I was just enjoying the weirdness of bringing back Bill and Ted. And yeah. playing it relatively straight. And playing it relatively straight. Yeah, and it's, it's funny seeing these establishing scenes of, of middle-aged Bill and Ted talking about partying on and going against society's expectations. Yeah,
0: but Keanu Reeves looks like he knows this is a bit of a joke. Alex Wendt is properly in it. He's committed. It, it, but he's carrying fancy. the movie. He can do the
3: guitar. Yeah,
0: but doing Bill and Ted. The cultural moment
1: has works. passed a bit. It has to be a little more reflective of those times. Not- I, th- I think they've attempted to do that. By making this movie about how Bill and Ted are washed up, and things haven't worked out for them, and things won as they you know yeah because it's the yeah the answer is the weirdness of having Bill and Ted out of time of just transporting them at basically as they were to the current you know, but I was just thinking with with Bill and Ted's level of success at the second one, what does being a washed up star actually look like in this it's basically as though Bill and Ted never achieved any level of success, yeah. Right. Like if, if they were as popular as they did where they played a mega concert at the Grand Canyon, even if they put out crap material for the last 30 years, it would be like, oh, your it wouldn't be like, your daughters are still living at home at 24 and writing music and not having jobs. It would be like, yeah, yeah, they, they, they can keep doing that. They can keep doing that while we cash the royalties. They'll figure it out eventually. Yeah, yeah, it's all cool. Like Bill and Ted would live in the, the Dave Grohl mansion we see later in the film. Which was pretty very funny. That's what it should have been. It should have been like we're coasting, or we've given up, or we've split up, and we've got to get back together, or something. Because like these guys were like U two level big. They were bigger. They were bigger than the Beatles, probably. They were like at least Rolling Stones level big, right?
0: Well, to to use the Beatles analogy or the comment, the bigger than Jesus, that really applied to the level of fame they wanted to impart so there's no way they would just relate to this universe no but they but well we always have the story of the semi-washed up rock stuff it's very neatly into that mold and that's the thing the first two bill and tell ted films even though they were stoner films they were against different genre norms this doesn't do that it just okay. falls into that
1: they could be the washed up like oh it's a shame the state they're in but they wouldn't be playing open mic they just wouldn't be playing music at all, and the yeah. concept would have been: Bill and Ted have to learn to play music together because it turns out that massive hit single they thought was the song wasn't, because the people from the future come back and like, "What are you doing?" I, I know. We, we of shouldn't. There was, so the problem is, I, I won't get into all of my fan fiction ideas about what Bill and Ted Three should have been, but Honestly, there was. It's it's a it's a lift off for a
0: potential spin off with the daughters. Yeah, that's so I think
1: that's yeah. part of what they were going for. But not, so,
0: if a film should never be a, a, a spin off for another. They're not fully designed as such.
1: Yeah. They're not. Well, tell that to Marvel Studios. I will. And I have. Chris,
0: (laughs) Hope you're listening. Marvel. Yeah.
1: Take that Disney. (laughs) It's just that, as you said, you see the potential for other better films. There's so many other better directions they could have taken it in. I think if they were going to really confront the weirdness of having Bill and Ted back, I would be okay with them doing something light if it was as boundary pushing and creative as Bill and Ted 2 was. But a better film for the record it is the best
0: of the, oh, of the series.
1: Dude. dude, Bill and, Bill and Ted 2, like I was saying, it's amazingly creative. This film is missing the obvious opportunities suggested by its setup. Bill and Ted 2, on the other hand, surprises you. In this one, I think they needed to go darker. Right
3: by the books, actually. Like, this, this narrative is it's trying to be weird, but actually... It's, just, it's
1: actually kind of by the
0: books.
3: Hitting hitting the beats and be like, oh cool, now this happens, now this happens, now this happens.
0: Yeah, so they had had ideas. It's like an episode of SNL. And not that I don't like SNL, I enjoy it a lot. They had a bunch of ideas for individual sketches involving Bill and Ted. Some are funny, some are not. They're very poorly strung together. And that's nothing like the original two films were, where it was a narrative where they had a goal. They were trying to get all the historical figures. They were trying to impress their partners and um, achieve glory. There's a lot more of a clear motivating arc in those. Whereas here it's, oh, wouldn't it be funny if they were doing this and this? And some of it's great to see them in costume and get up, but a lot of it doesn't land. I refer to the scenes that worked really well. But the biggest
1: problem of it for me is that it's a greatest hits package of Bill & Ted 1 and 2. So it's the Bill and Ted one stuff of we're going to go back and collect a bunch of historical figures. Side note, that ends up being totally irrelevant to the thread of the narrative. The way that the narrative resolves itself is actually a cop out, I would say, and it's just not that well thought out a story. Yeah, but completely on. for a spinoff. Yeah, it's that aspect of Bill & Ted 1 combined with the we're going to go to hell and, and meet death stuff from Bill & Ted 2. But the daughters were, the who the daughters were funny. There on. is some new stuff in there, but in general, for me, it felt too much like a rehash and a greatest hits package. And the problem is that when you invite comparisons like that, you can't fall short. The direction... Showing number two went so far off the beaten track. Exactly. So the direction in this new one is quite bad, um, like quite flat visually. I can accept that it's low budget, bad CGI. What I can't accept is the absence of great ideas. If you look at the way that- There's a much
0: bigger budget on this one than any of the others.
1: Oh, I doubt it. I I reckon relative for its time, Bill & Ted 2 was a much more expensive movie. I mean, the the sets and stuff in Bill & Ted 2 are still great. And the puppet and stuff, Bill & Ted 2 looks like they spent some money on it.
0: But the CGI in this, they could have spent a little money on a scrap to nails.
1: Meh. I'm not here to take them to task for having a low budget. That's fine. But just think about how much more creative and also less expensive to produce the conceptualization of hell is in Bill and Ted Two versus Three. Three, it looks like generic concept art of, you know, hell with demons flying around and big planes of lava. And you've seen it a million times before. Bill and Ted Two looked for a creative way around illustrating what hell would be like. It just shows the difference between the movies. They needed to come back with that level of creativity to justify themselves. And If not that, I think they've tried to make a film that won't sit too strangely on the shelf next to Bill and Ted one and two. But I think that's a fool's errand because it's always going to be weird when you've got these really middle-aged guys. It's always gonna be out of time and strange. I think if they were going to do it, they needed to really address that. They've tried, I think they've tried to do it lightly, but I think the movie, if it's going to deal with themes about aging and family, I think the end disappointment. This doesn't feel like a trilogy in the slightest. Yeah, and, yeah. and family, family being potentially falling apart. It's touching on those themes. I, th- I know that Bill and Ted is dumb stone of fun, but I think they needed to address that deeper to justify the film's existence and make something more heartfelt. And I can think of a bunch of ways they could have done that, but they dropped the ball.
3: I have a theory about that, about the weirdest weirder thing and whether or not this film could be weirder. The, the problem with that is maybe our generation probably was spoiled for choice when it comes to like Stoner films and weirder films. Well. But when you're appealing to the next generation. I think the problem is, I don't think anybody's quite as sure as to how much weird is too weird or whether or not there is acceptance of that weird genre anymore given the fact that we are now in a different time. So they try to go for that, but still try to play it safe as well. Trying to see like, oh, maybe this is too weird now. It wouldn't be weird in the 90s, but maybe now the times have changed. And what was weird and cool back then could just be weird and creepy.
0: It it was and now what I'm with, isn't it? This isn't a film that is made for our parents' generation only. It's made for us. It's made to be generally acceptable and a similar outcome of what a, we understand a stoner company is or once was it's supposed to be you, you recognize this this is your bill and ted like this was your star wars if it's not our star wars it's a different thing entirely it's a nostalgia it comfortably within the bill and ted or within the bill and ted arc there isn't any reason as such if the film addressed today our feelings as many stone a good stone comedies would disenfranchisement of feeling a little alienated for what is going on generally in society and for a lot of people's sense of hopelessness or helplessness it would be great but it didn't really do that they're afraid to the really go there of hey we are washed up it just kind of started the shooting point and then we're off to bill and ted's greatest hits
1: yeah i just think that the idea of like i said before going back to what they did i sort of just ask why Because, yeah, you're you're retconning the way that Bill and Ted 2 ended. So it's not going to be that, wow, it's so great to see them on the big screen. Like, hardcore fans could be annoyed by that. It's funny to talk about the idea of hardcore fans of Bill and Ted. There are. There Um, are plenty. I know there are plenty. but And on the other hand, you know, you're not going to hit the same appeal of, like, this is just a silly, fun romp because young people aren't going to watch... This, if they have no familiarity, they're probably not going to watch this because it's it screams boomer movie, right? Gen X movie. I know it's not really boomer. It's anchored by these two old stars and it's all built around nostalgia. I, I sort of feel like it's the like trying to please everyone, try to please no yeah. one thing. Like that, I think you needed to address the, the weirdness Glenn was talking about, about like coming back to this time and doing it now and um, confronting these ideas of disappointment. And you can do that and still make a silly fun movie. It doesn't have to be um, a really dark, heavy thing. It's Bill and Ted. I just think they could have more elegantly built the movie around the themes and the climax should have been heartfelt and was not. The, the climax was actually really dumb, by the way. The climax was the worst part of the movie.
0: And the film, other films, they, were, they weren't dumb. They were dumb. They, they were silly, but they weren't dumb. There's an important distinction. Yes. This was just pure... An interesting irreverence
3: I, I was just thinking because the thing is with the the problem with the film is essentially what they're trying to do as well is they're trying to introduce gen x or the latest generation whichever gen now it is uh, to uh, to Gen Z. no ben one's quite clear to, to basically the stoner mo- movie genre because i feel this current generation doesn't have that
0: we but they want to, to do over. it
3: in a way which is still safe enough so it doesn't alienate them entirely, you know, so that they don't watch the movie and be like, this is weird as fuck, bro. And like, you know, I don't want to be uh, watching this. But
1: yeah, I think like trying to get people, like trying to make this movie appeal to the young generation is something they shouldn't go out of their way to do. I think it should have just sat as it was what it was. No.
3: The problem is uh, I think in a lot of people's minds that Stoner Generation is a demographic and that's like Gen
1: X, the Stoner generation. I love it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Like, you know, and people feel like, you know, once you pass that age, you you're kind of like beyond that kind of zeitgeist.
0: That's what the movie's about. Uh, Thanks for listening. This has been Glenn Fowings and Chris Evans of Arat Nehru. The Sydney Underground Film Festival is screening now. Bill and Ted Face the Music is in cinemas. And check out Queer Screen and the other festivals that are happening online. Have a wonderful night. Enjoy movies. Stay chill, dudes. Good night.